Hey, good morning, guys. Grab a seat. My name is Randall, one of the leaders here at Hub City. It is so good to be here with you guys and see all of you. I don't know half of you, but I look forward to hopefully getting to know some of you here today. Um, grab a Bible. You're going to need one if you don't have one sitting around you. We might have some we can get to you or, or turn your Bible on, grab a tablet, whatever you have. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to open it to chapters 5, but I want you to kind of keep like a thumb between chapter 5 and chapter 4. We're going we're gonna to go back to this story that Jesse just read through us. Um, Matt walked us through really like the culmination of what Mark had been kind of the, the narrative that he kind of been pushing all the way up until chapter 4. And then that last little piece that Jesse read kind of serves as a transition into where Mark's going to go next. And so we want to go back and look at that real quick, but we're really moving ahead to, to Mark chapter 5. So um, we want to look at that story and kind of put it in its context. Because here's what's happened, right? If you've been paying attention or if you know Mark's gospel, but then if you don't, I don't have time to like walk you through all of it today, but I can tell you this. Mark um, has really, with intent and purpose, he's kind of like rattled off like a, 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 a litany of these like healings, these miraculous healings or miracles that Jesus has done. And um, he's done that really like with a rapid fire succession. It's even hard to kind of keep track of all the ones that we've seen and heard so far. Um, and here's what this all reveals to us. And this is Mark's intention kind of with this precision and purpose. And Mark wants to show his audience, his readers, that Jesus is sovereign over all. He's the type of king that establish his authority, his righteous reign and rule over all of his creation. So there's nothing that Jesus and his authority doesn't touch or govern or have impact on. And then his kingdom, which is we live in this moment that we can recognize that his kingdom is breaking in and it broke in with Jesus. Um, it's already and it's not yet. It's not fully realized, but we see these beautiful pieces of his kingdom and Mark's intention through these miracles is to show us that Jesus is sovereign over all of that. He has authority all over all of that. And, and why? Well, remember, Mark is mostly concerned with asserting to us even today, but certainly his, his, his first audience, which were a group of Jesus followers in Rome who began to suffer under the persecution of Nero. And so he's writing to them to assert Jesus's position as the one true king, right? And, and, and how comforting would that be to, to know that Jesus is sovereign over life and death and he can bring people back from the dead and he has and, he's, and he did, like we see at the end of chapter five. Um, and he's a good king. He's a righteous king. He's a generous king to his people as they're suffering under this like despotic rule from this guy Nero and they're, they're suffering persecution. And so so he really wants his readers and us today to, to recognize Jesus as king over all, who is bringing a kingdom of justice and righteousness and peace to bear upon this broken, sin-filled world. And the miracles serve that end. They assert and prop up Jesus because there's some crazy things that happen in these miracles. Pastor and author Jared Wilson says this, in his book, The, the Wonder-Working God, about how we should frame up and, and what lens we should think about miracles through. Because they happen, right? They happen in this story. And I, and I think that probably most of us in the room believe fully that God 
certainly is still a miraculous God. He's consistent. He's the same God. And so they can happen today. And he says this, Jared Wilson says this, what if the miracles in the Bible and miracles today, should they still occur, are not God trying to give, convince us he's like up there somewhere, looming out there in heaven and trying on earth to get us to acknowledge him, but are actually God showing us that he is right here, right now in charge. What if, in other words, God is not an interloper in our world, but the things we find so familiarly every day, sin and corruption, injustice, decay and death, these very laws of nature are interlopers in his. And so what the miracles become and begin to reveal to us is what's normative in the kingdom, what the gospel does. And, and when we're able to see the world that we live in through that lens, I believe that we get closer to the heart of the gospel. And, and when, we, when we see the world through the reality of the kingdom of God, that it is breaking in, that, that when Jesus showed up, he stood in front of people and said, like, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right before you. You can see it in me, and I am the good king who's bringing a good kingdom. And so these miracles, they become just as provocative, just as scandalous, just as subversive today as they were in the first century Palestine. And so, so chapter five, as we get to that chapter, um, it, I think there's a central passage to chapter five. Like all of it's important, all of it's God's word to his people, but I really want us to hone in on just this, this one kind of miraculous event that occurs. Um, and it's this account of Jesus's restoration of this demon-possessed man, right? But Chapter 5 also, as I said, it, it highlights these other miracles, the healing of this woman who had been suffering um, for, from hemorrhaging for 12 years, and then there's the resurrection of this Jewish official's daughter from the dead. So there's, there's amazing, crazy things happening in this chapter, but we're going to spend our time today primarily focusing in on just those first 20 verses of chapter 5, that first of those three stories, the healing of the demon-possessed man. Why? Man, first of all, just because it's, it's so weird and dark, and like emo-ish, like we have to talk about it, right? But, but really more importantly to that, because of all the miracles that Mark writes about in chapter 5, and even that last one in chapter 4, I think it serves as such a fitting parallel, and you'll see how this unfolds for us today. Like there's a direct connection, because the reality is, while we believe in an eternal resurrection from the dead for those that follow Jesus, my guess is, and I'm not saying that God couldn't do this, my guess is that probably none of you are going to walk out of here and die, but then have Jesus resurrect you to a new life in that moment, right? Now, it could happen. I'm not saying that God couldn't do it. Most of you have not been hemorrhaging for 12 years. If you have, please go see a doctor, right? Um, but the point of this story that we see of this demon-possessed man, a, 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 an individual, an image bearer that is so lost and so disconnected from the reality of who they are, under spiritual oppression, being restored to the true intent and purpose when God created that person. Like that runs such a direct parallel for us today, right? So as we kind of get into this, like just look how it opens. We'll, we'll jump into this. It, it just opens uh, real quick. We've got Jesus and his disciples and they're arriving in the region of the Gerasenes, which is a part of like kind of a greater area known as the Decapolis. And it comprised of like 10 fairly significant cities 
Um, and it's also, this is important to, to kind of mark and note, it's also a predominantly Gentile area. So Jesus has moved out of Galilee where he really kicks off his public ministry and he gets this little detour over to a, an area that is predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish. That's incredibly significant to Jesus's ministry as he's beginning to reveal the mystery of the gospel, which is that. The mystery of the gospel is that it's for all people. It's for every tribe and tongue and nation, and it's not just for Jesus' people, for, for Israel. It's for everybody, and so that's a significant detail. The second we see Jesus and his disciples, who are weary um, from a long day, they, they climb out of the boat, and, and we're meant to really, like before Jesus can even get all ten toes in the sand, right? He's accosted by this like wildly violent, naked man, right? Oh, and I think I mentioned that he's possessed by a demon or two. So this would have been a shocking scene because they arrive, at, as it goes on to tell us, like in this like scene of like a graveyard. And so they, they jump out of the boat and this guy runs to them. He's, he's naked. Now, okay. I don't know, like we got to talk about this in like a really delicate way, but unclothed humans, right? Like, we all know that there's, there's places that you can go, like, probably going to see that there, right? Certain beaches, whatever. I don't want to go too far into that, but I don't, but the thing about this scene that Jesus, and there's, like, when you see it in an unexpected place, right? Like, it's way more shocking. It, it etches your mind, it just, like, etches itself into your mind. Like, I'll never forget in October years ago in Corvallis, and I'm driving with a buddy. We've got a big event. It's late October, right? We're getting ready for like a Halloween event for high school kids, and we're driving up Monroe, probably going to American Dream Pizza, and we're driving down the sidewalk, and we see a pair of shoes and like a sock, and this is like going down the block, heading towards American Dream Pizza, and we see uh, another sock, and we see a pair of pants, like you don't need to keep going with it, right? Like you get it, right? And all of a sudden here, there's just a, a dude unclothed, walking down the street. Like, I still visually can see it. It's a shocking scene. So, especially when it's, like, an unexpected place. Like, here's the deal. Like, you should all be safely and, like, secure that when you walk in here, it's 100% guaranteed that's something that you won't see. But when it's in an unexpected place, like, listen, like, we all know you walk into Walmart, 100% chance that you're probably going to see something, right? It's just the way it works. So, so this scene, like, we need to cement this into our brains. This scene is just on its own terribly shocking to the disciples, especially considering what they had just experienced, which is what Jesse read to us, right? So we're going to take a look at what happens in this story, and we're going to see these four very simple movements that happen to this guy, right? So first, in verses 1 through 7, we'll see this embodiment of what it means to be alienated, what it means to be separated and, and separated from community and family, but most importantly, separated from God, alienated, right? This guy is a desperate, despondent figure, and, and, human, uh, and, he, and he really represents human alienation and, and brokenness and, and need and suffering and oppression. And then verse 8 through 13, we're going to watch Jesus respond to this man in mercy and grace and we're going to see this guy go from alienation to, to salvation, right? Redemption, restoration. And then verse 14 through 17, as the word spreads about what took place, and this would have been shocking as we'll get into the story. You'll understand why. 
as, as word begins to spread about what happened in this man's life, people begin to flock to the scene. Of course you would, right? And we'll see like their very tragic response. They don't welcome and receive any of this as good news. They're not filled with excitement and joy. Instead, the response to this miracle is rejection. So there's alienation, there's salvation, there's rejection. And then verses 18 through 20, as Jesus gets ready to leave and depart the scene, he, seen, he sends this like newly restored image bearer, this formerly demonic possessed person. He actually sends him on mission. So we've got alienation to salvation to rejection to mission, right? So before we dig in, let me pray. I feel like I just need to confess all that stuff about public nudity, and then we'll get into the story, okay? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you are a good and loving God. And, and we, um, we were once alienated from you. We were far from you. And the truth of the story is it's not about our pursuit of you. It's that you sent your son Jesus in pursuit of a fallen, broken creation to restore and redeem it to your original intention, to bring your kingdom of shalom and peace to full bear on this broken, sinful world. And so we look at this story today, and, and while like, there's some things that, that are odd about it culturally that, that seem like a disconnect, it, it couldn't be more true of us as a people, as your church today. We, we were alienated, and yet you gave us a salvation in Jesus. And, and it's just simply true that the world will reject the gospel. The world will reject your community of faith, your family, your covenant family. There's a rejection there that happens. And then you send us on mission with good news and kingdom dis on full display so that people would no longer reject who you are. So we thank you for this story. I pray that we would, we would walk out of here just completely transformed because of it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so again, let's, let's flip back. That's why I wanted you to kind of keep your thumb there into that story in chapter four, right? There's the scene. If you remember, Jesus went out, like the crowds were, were swarming. It was becoming unsafe. So Jesus gets on a boat and he preaches and he teaches from a boat, right? And so he'd been preaching and teaching really all day, right? Now, listen, like I'm embarrassed. Like I went on, I don't know, like a 15 mile mountain bike ride yesterday. It was all day long. It was super taxing. Um, preaching is more exhausting than that. And I, and I, and I, like, I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, but like anybody do public speak, public speaking and, or performative stuff. It's crazy how many cal it's exhausting, right? You burn all these calories. Like I should be way fitter than I am, not from mountain biking, but from preaching, right? Like, like when I do when I do one sermon on a day, I go home and take a, about a 25-minute about a nap. I set a timer, then I can get back up and do this. When I do two sermons in, in one day, I go home and take a coma, right? So it's, it's crazy, right? So, so Jesus had been preaching all day. He, he's in his humanness, who he was fully human. He was tired. He's like, can I just get a little me time? Like, I need to take a break, right? So, so he finally finds just a few moments of peace as they're crossing the sea. Now, the Sea of Galilee is interesting. It's below sea level, and because of its geography, like the, these rising hills around it, and then there's a valley that sweeps into it, it, it can be known to switch its weather systems really quick. Like, like the mountains here in the Cascades, like Mount Hood, the rain, like Mount Rainier, same. Like, and so like weather systems can come in without knowing it. You can't see it. And so, so these 
the, the fishermen on the boat with Jesus, they would, have, they would have known what a storm in the Sea of Galilee feels like. It can be violent, it can be scary, but this is something different, right? And so Jesus finally starts to fall asleep on this cruise across the Galilee Sea. He's got a little pillow apparently for him there. Mark is interesting in his account of this particular story as we close out chapter 4 of the calming of the sea and that he gives details that the other synoptic gospel writers don't, Matthew and Luke. And so he gives all these kind of crazy details about a pillow and all these things. And so he's asleep in the stern of the boat. Um, probably T-Pain is with him because they're on a boat. And like right after he dozes off, right? But, but, but not long enough before he can hit like rim sleep. Um, he's suddenly and violently shaken awake by his disciples. And they're freaking out. And then they accuse him of not caring about them because he's sleeping in the middle of this massive storm. And the wind is tossing the boat like to and fro. And I've never said to and fro before. I'm glad I get to say it there. And the waves are like crashing over the sides of the boat. So if you just look at that story, look at, look at verse 36. And this just indicates how severe the storm was, right? And it indicates some other things. Like some commentators believe that this scene is the same scene that unfolded in, in John chapter 6 as they're crossing the sea. Because it says this, it says in Mark chapter 36, of, or ch- chapter 4, verse 36, it says that there were other boats, like people were like, no, we want to stick with Jesus because he's providing stuff for us, he's giving us food, he's healing us, he's saying some really great things, and so they take off with them, but then at some point in this storm, they peace out and they turn around, right? The storm was so violent, it was so terif- terrifying to them at the other boats, They're like, we're out. doesn't matter what they think they can get from Jesus, how important that is to them. It's not worth weathering this storm because there's no mention of them when they get to the other side of the beach. And so when they finally reach that side, they reach the garrisons, the other side of the sea, there's there's no crowds waiting for Jesus. You think about that Jesus in in Mark's gospel, like he's always surrounded by the crowds, right? And and he really has had this moment where where he's really like accosted the people with the, with the gospel and, 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 and what, it, what the cost of discipleship is and the fact that while these miracles are, are a primary thing that he does and his te- teaching is significant, what's most important is the work that he's going to do on the cross. And, and people start to kind of fall off because they're like, well, you're not meeting our needs and following Jesus wasn't what we thought. And so, so now he's on the other side of the sea and, and, and there's nobody, there's not a long line of people looking to, to be healed. There's not a line of sick people. There's not hungry people looking to be fed. There's no Pharisees trying to ensnare him in some theological trap. So for Jesus and his disciples, they're like, as, as they're getting out of the boat, like finally a moment of peace from this kind of relentless, it's all good, but it's been this relentless barrage of just people like, like, if you're an introvert, you get that. You're like, I just need a break, right? I'm drained. And so maybe he's like, I can just catch a few moments of just some much-needed respite. But then look at verse 1 and 12, right? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And again, remember, Mark writes with an immediacy, right? He, he wants the action to, to not relent, just keep pushing and keep going. And so, so it says, like, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, right, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, right? So he's immediately confronted with that disturbing scene that I just described, and it's unlike anything that's happened in Mark's account so far, right? Notice how Mark describes this poor man in verses 2 
3 and 5, he says that they were in the tomb. So we're meant to see that he's in a graveyard, right? Now, I don't know how many of you hang out in graveyards, right? Um, I'm guessing none other than like, you know, significant days where you go. Um, so it's very uncommon. But, but for, for Jesus and his disciples, right, there's a lot happening here, right? Again, they're traveling over to a scene that's predominantly Gentile. Now, interactions with Gentiles, I mean, A, there's embedded in that. There's a lot of hostility. Um, there's some even racism involved in that. Um, and so it gets, it gets questionable quick as to why a Jewish person would be interacting with a Gentile. But Jesus is over there finding some respite. We know why Jesus on his mission is there. Um, but then you get this reality that the guy and the scene that they come into, they, they, they come into this effectively a graveyard, which would have been like, tombs cut in the side of the hill, like, like um, caves, basically. And this guy, this is where this guy, this guy lives, right? And it says that he has this unclean spirit. So here's what you need to see happening here. He's in a predominantly Jewish, I mean, Gentile area, unclean. He now reaches and finds this guy who's naked and he's going crazy and um, he's unclean because he's a Gentile. And they're in an amongst dead things in this graveyard, unclean, right? So that word unclean is significant and it's very intentional. It's not just saying that this guy was like dirty, like every, like my, my, my middle school boy, right? It's just like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that Israel had these very strict laws about cleanliness and the Torah stated that being around or touching dead bodies or dead things or being near any type of death, um, especially like in a graveyard, that would make someone ceremonially unclean, right? And so they couldn't, until they took care of that, they couldn't participate in life and faith and community. And so again, remember, they're in this area that is mainly Gentile, and that's why there's a pig farm nearby. Pigs were seen as unclean animals for Jewish people. They were forbidden to eat them, bummer, right? Or even like touch them. So, so this is an unclean land, populated by an unclean people who eat unclean food. And here's this demon-possessed man who is the very embodiment, embodiment of the epitome of uncleanliness. And, and while we're not told how or why, what we see is that he's being oppressed, uh, possessed, tormented by these evil spiritual forces, right? Now, listen, I get it. Like, that is a little unsettling. Like, that's probably the most unsettling thing in the story for us. Like, like some of us maybe choose to go like, yeah, I don't hang out in graveyards. I don't walk around naked. I don't eat pigs. Like, we're all okay with that. But then to get to this point where the story gets a little weird for us as like kind of modern 21st century readers is like, what, demon possession? Like, that sounds like the weird part, right? Um, and we get all sorts of conversations around what that looks like. Certainly, that led to this guy like having a psychotic break, right? We need to understand that this guy's not just like a tweaker, right? But he is being oppressed and possessed by evil spiritual forces like demons, okay? So let's look at this verse 3 and, and 4, um, which by the way, I mean, this only added to the magnitude of this guy's pain and suffering and isolation, okay? So verse 3 and 4, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. So they had attempted to like strap him down, bind him up, ropes, chains, whatever they had, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him, right? So, so even the townspeople, man, they had, they had attempted to restrain him. I think we're meant to see that like 
the townspeople were like, this guy's not stable to be around us. And so they probably excommunicated him and kicked him out of the community so he has no place to live. And, and furthermore, he was probably a threat to, to people. And so they've tried to restrain him. And every time they attempted to restrain him, they, they couldn't, right? He's got this like supernatural strength. And every time they tied him up, he would just break free. And so now he's just left to himself. He's completely cast out, abandoned. This is alienation, right? His only shelter, the only place he finds any sort of shelter are these tombs that are caved into the, carved into the, the face of the rock. So he's, he's wandering through this like desolate wasteland and he's wailing in agony and despair. And then, and then look at verse 5, right? Night and day among the tombs and the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones, right? Like we know what that's about, right? We, we've got a good handle today on what most commonly, how that manifests itself. And it's a deep and desperate cry for help. And there's a sense of urgency to what's happening. Like he's looking for a way in that cutting to like release the torment and the pain of his experience. I mean, even to the point I think we're meant to see, even if it escalated to the point of ending himself and coming to a conclusion, whatever it would take to, to get rid of all of the, the suffering and the pain that he's experiencing. So either way, we're meant to see this as a very sobering and disturbing picture of human despair and alienation. He's all alone. He's overcome and he's dominated by the enemy. And that's the first thing, right, that I want us to think about together, this picture of alienation. Like you see, like we read this story and, and we're, we're processing it here on a Sunday morning, right? And, and we're in church and we all know what that means. And like, man, we're like nice and clean and, and, and we're like in this like pretty okay building. I mean, I'm pretty confident it's not going to collapse on us. And for the most part, we're affluent, educated, polite, nice people. And we tend to read this account in Mark's gospel. And we notice like the extremes that this poor man has been driven to. And we think, I don't, like, I don't, there's no commonality, right? Like this guy's lived experiences, probably not like any of our lived experiences, right? But, but, but I think when we, when we, disconnect that, right? When, when we think we have nothing in common, I think it's a serious mistake for us to disconnect ourselves from the story of this man. Like Mark wants us to look at this man and, and not because he's an extreme case, right? But because the difference between us and him is one of degree, right? Not, n- not at all one of kind, and so it's not like you're just like them, but there's a degree in which we're like this person. We're alienated, right? We're alienated from the things of God. We're alienated at times from life and community, and, and we're oppressed. And so this disease of sin that works itself into every facet of this man's life, right? And it's there, and it just shows how, how depraved and how deep and how dark this can go. And, and Mark wants us to understand that if we're not following Jesus, if we have not submitted to Jesus as king and as savior, if we're unregenerate, like no matter how clean and nice and self-righteous and how moral we can be, right? And, and no matter how hard we try to break free of the change of oppression and slavery to sin, right? Like, like we just can't do it on our own. 
And so, so we're every bit as enslaved to sin as this guy, like isolated in every way. So when Paul wrote to the Colossians, right, he said this in, in, in chapter 1, verse 21. He said, and you, right, speaking of those that follow Jesus, right, so past tense, what's true of you past tense, so there's good news in this for those of us that are following Jesus, have submitted to him, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil. So this is formerly true of you if you now follow Jesus, right? But it reveals, like this is the condition of the not yet restored human being. And, and to be clear, he's not, like Paul's not describing demonic possession. He's not saying that, that they were like possessed by demons. But, but those words are a fitting description of this guy in the graveyard that, that Jesus met that night on the beach, right? Like, like he's alienated. He, he's hostile to his community and people around him. He's hostile in his mind. He's, he's doing evil deeds. And, and if you don't know Jesus, if, if, if you have not submitted to Jesus as king and as savior, the Bible says that that same disease and corruption of sin, that same terribly destructive contagion, like rules your heart, you're enslaved to it, but Jesus came, and the good news is to set you free from that, just like this man. And so if you read this passage, and you see the alienation, and you see the suffering of this man, and you say, like, that's not me, this has nothing to do with me, you're reading it wrong, you're missing Mark's message, right? And so there's always this piece, like, if you're a regenerate, if you're a restored human being, and, and you've trusted Jesus, and you're following Jesus, like, like, the good news is, yeah, you're completely free from that, and we also have to recognize like, that that was all of our past. Like, all of us are just like this guy, alienated and in need of salvation. So, so this is just an, an, an image, a picture of how terrible the disease of sin can be and how devastating it is and how it enslaves us and holds us hostage. And so Mark wants you to see that the same disease that lives in the heart of unregenerate people, just like the man in the story, like if you're in need of that same deliverance and the same deliverer that this man found, so it's actually fascinating to me, right? This guy, it says, it says that he came running to Jesus, right? Which is interesting, right? Because he doesn't know who Jesus is. Like the human behind this story, chances are he has no idea. Like there's no social media, there's no newspapers. So what had been happening on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, as miraculous as it was, all the healings, the, as the, the, the biggest crowd that Jesus could draw, right? Um, they didn't know him. It's like when you discover like a, a music artist like that, you know, maybe popular in another country and, and, and they've got a huge following there, but then like nobody knows who they are here, right? And the hipsters amongst us love that. We're like, that's cool. Like it's the same thing. Like this guy had no idea who Jesus was, right? It's the first time he's probably hearing, seeing about Jesus. Demons that were oppressing him and possessing him, they did, right? So so they're consuming this guy. They're consuming his personality, right? They're, they're terrified of Jesus. Look at verse 6 and 7. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me, right? So it gets tricky here because you've got the human here, and then you've got these demons, legion, like, which, which we'll get into here in a second, but they're, right, they, they try to command Jesus, like, like, they have some authority over Jesus, they, they command him, like, just leave us alone, right, they're, they're expecting from Jesus, like, they know the story, they know what's coming, they're expecting torment or destruction 
or both, right? So they know that Jesus has come to put an end to them. And despite that, instead of running from Jesus, the man runs to Jesus and falls on his knees before him. So that's the first thing I want you to see, like alienation, right? Now let's look at what happens next here. Um, we're going to look at verse 7 through 13, and we're going to see how this guy responds to Jesus. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So, so somebody in this picture, the demon's like, they know who Jesus is. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly, Do not send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Right? So we need to see this, like this is that salvific point. This is redemptive. This is that point of, of salvation, being freed from oppression for this man. And Jesus asks the man, like, he's like, well, so, so what's your name, right? And the guy responds, my name is Legion. And, and I'm not sure that that's the name his mama gave him. I, I, I highly doubt it, right? Like, it's probably Steve. I don't know, right? So see, see what's happened to this guy? Like, he's, he's lost himself. Jesus says, well, what's your name? And he's completely lost himself, and not in the music or the moment, but he's lost himself in any sense of who he is because he's so possessed by these oppressive spiritual forces that he's alienated not only from God and the true reality, but he's alienated from, from who he is, right? And in the case of this poor man, it, it, actually, it's, it's pretty a, appropriate description of his tragic condition. A, a Roman legion is, is probably what the reference is here too, and it would have been comprised of like 6,000 soldiers, right? So it's, it probably isn't being used here in a literal sense, but it's me meant to give us an indication of how utterly like overwhelmed this guy's personality, his psyche um, ha has come to be like completely oppressed He's lost every sense of who he is by this extraordinary demonic oppression um, and this occupation in, in his life. And, and so it's an indication of really like the incomprehensible range and sheer volume of forces beneath which his psyche and his consciousness and his identity and sense of self have been submerged. He's lost himself like completely and utterly his own name, his own identity beneath a legion of hostile and evil powers. And Jesus is resolved to deliver him from this wretched state, right? And then comes one of the more like odd moments in the Gospels, right? And, and especially in this narrative, sometimes it gets people a little upset. Like if you're a card-carrying member of PETA, I'm sorry for this next part, right? But the demons beg Jesus, like send us into this herd of pigs, about 2,000 of them, right? So he does. And the pigs then rush down this steep bank like a bunch of lemmings, and they jump off the cliff, and then they drown in the sea. Um, if that makes you upset, I get it. It's a, it's, it is a hard, like, hard story. But it, so if, it, if it's unsettling to you because you're like, oh, man, I love animals, and you see a bunch of pigs die, I would go fine, but 
when you give up bacon, then we can really talk about the poor pigs, right? So he's, he, like, what's really happening in this story? Like, why the pigs? And, and so what are we to make of all of it? The unclean spirits, like, they go into these unclean pigs, and they're drowned in the sea. I think it's a picture of, of judgment in some ways. This is why Jesus came to undo and destroy all the works of the enemy. So the man is set free, and the evil powers are destroyed. That's what's going on. Like, un cleanness, like sin itself is, is thrown into the depths of the sea. It reminds me of this passage in Micah seven nineteen. It's a beautiful passage. It says, he will again have compassion on us. And, and how much compassion in this moment is Jesus having on this man? He will tread our iniquities under feet. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Like our sin is gone. If you're a Jesus follower, your sin and your guilt and your shame is gone. Now that Jesus has come, evil is overthrown. Satan and his minions are defeated. The seed of the woman has triumphed over the seed of the serpent, has crushed his head. Jesus, every time, gets the W and Satan gets the L, right? Here's the point I want you to grasp. It's it's really not that hard to see, right? When the crowds arrive, they come out from the cities, and when they hear what has happened, they, they find the man who had been legion, and they see him now sitting there, and it says, it says that he's dressed again, right? So that's the piece. Like, you don't actually get the piece that he's naked before that, but now that he's dressed, he's in his own right mind. Like, he is fully restored, right? And this freaks them out. He's lucid. He's, 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 he's talking. He's because, because they see this like unreal transformation that has occurred between who he was and who he is now, and it's all because of Jesus. It's all because Jesus showed up. Like he was this naked, cutting himself guy, wandering and wailing in agony and despair, living in this unclean graveyard filled with tombs. So this picture is the epitome of alienation from God, from God and from man. But now that Jesus has arrived, here he is, clothed, sitting in his right man, restored, whole at last. Listen, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is just as true today. It's just as true today as when Mark wrote it thousands of years ago. To come to Jesus, to find Jesus, to submit to the king's authority and the oppressive yoke of slavery, the, the slavery and bondage of sin will be broken forever in your life. Not that sin is gone, but you're, you're justified now, which means you're freed from sin's penalty. And, and right now, today, as a follower of Jesus, you are being sanctified day after day, which means you are being freed from sin's power in your life. It no longer controls you and oppresses you. So come to Jesus, and the alienated will be reconciled. The guilty will be pardoned. The oppressed are delivered. The dominion of sin is overthrown. The naked are clothed now in righteousness. In your right mind at last, now that Jesus has broken in, now that the king has arrived and has begun to set things right at last, there is freedom today for you and Jesus. He's come to set prisoners free. So there's alienation, then salvation and then notice, however, there's this rejection, right? Look at the tragic response of the crowds. As the crowds get out 
as the word kind of gets out about what happened, look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what is it that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, begun, or had been legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it, like we're supposed to, you should flip back to that story in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus calms the storm, right? And it says that, they were, ter- they were afraid of the storm, but they're more terrified of Jesus' authority and power to calm the storm. And now we have all the townspeople. They're afraid. Right? So this is a parallel kind of thing that happened at the end of chapter 4 to, to, to now. Like every time that Jesus works these crazy miracles, people actually are like, they're, they're a bit afraid of them, right? And those who had seen it described to them what they had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region, right? So obviously the pig herders are upset, right? They, they, I don't blame them. They just lost their livelihood. They watched their livelihood run down the hill like a bunch of lemmings and huck themselves into to the sea to meet their demise. And the, the sight of the demon-possessed man, clothed and in his right mind, only seems to cement the sense everyone seems to have that Jesus and his presence seems to have this uncomfortable result of, of upending the status quo, right? Jesus's presence is disruptive in this narrative, and Jesus's presence today is no less disruptive to the narrative, radically overturning their lives and everything, everything that they think that they know. Verse 16 says that they were afraid when they saw the man and heard about the pigs. Verse 17 says, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region, right? So that's rejection taking place. They don't want Jesus around. Like, no doubt the demon-possessed man was a huge burden on this community. He's living in the tombs. He's howling at the moon. He's cutting himself. Every time they tried to restrain him, he goes ballistic and breaks free. But here's what's crazy. They seem to be even more uncomfortable with him now that he's restored. And they are even more afraid of the one who has restored him. So there's, and they beg him to leave. They're like, we don't want any more disruption in the story that we're living in because Jesus always shows up and disrupts that story. But here's what's crazy. They seem to even like, they seem to kind of grasp this. And then what happens with this guy? Because there's so much irony in this story while the crowds are begging Jesus to like, go away, just leave us alone, Jesus. The man that got restored begs to go with Jesus jesus right jesus won't permit him to join them though so instead he gives them this guy a mission right he he gives he, he sends him out to fulfill this look at verse 19 it says and he did not permit him to come with him but said go home to your friends and tell them how much the lord has done for you and how he has done had mercy on you and he went away and began to proclaim in the decapolis how much jesus had done for him and everyone marveled right so Jesus, seeing it happen, a little freaky, we're afraid of that. They start to hear what Jesus had done, and they're like, that's crazy, and they marvel at that. So if Jesus has set you free, like, what do you do? Like, how should you respond? What do you do with grace, the grace that has renovated and, and, and reinvigorated your life from the inside out? Like, I don't, I don't think you can do any better than follow the instructions that Jesus gave this man in this letter. Like, go home and tell your friends. 
and tell them how much Jesus has done for you and how much mercy and grace he's displayed on your behalf. And that's what you should do. You start with your friends. Start with the people that you already know. Man, the, God has given you a mission field. Like Jesus has given you a mission field. And when Jesus takes us from alienation to salvation, he does it so that he can send us out on mission. You are here to spread the honor and the fame of his name to the ends of the earth, to proclaim the gospel and to display the kingdom. So yes, like Jesus saved you for his purpose, for his glory, for his kingdom. But he's left you here for his mission. That's why you've been rescued, to proclaim the goodness of our king. Alienation, that's our condition. Salvation, that's what Jesus does for us. Rejection, that's what we can expect from the world. And why we're here right now is mission. It's Jesus Restore Albany. It's being a people who would speak the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us and then display the kingdom that's breaking in and bringing peace. So we're going to respond, hopefully, to, to, to what has been good news to your heart today, this morning. And we're going to do that in a few ways here at Hub City. Um, Austin's going to come back up, and he's going to lead us, and we're going to sing. Um, we're going to utilize these beautiful voices that God has given us to proclaim to each other and to God how good and merciful and compassionate and gracious he is. We'd ask that you would, that you would take some time and that you would pray. Um, you would communicate with God. Um, we, we're going to give as a response today, and we give as, as a response mechanism of worship. Like, it should be worshipful. It shouldn't be a burden. It should be filled with joy as we give. And we, we give um, in, in order to, to, to be a good news people so that we can take those resources and we can implement and utilize those in our community to be a good news to our city. And then we get to go to the table this morning, and we get to receive that good gift of grace that God has given to us as we participate in the bread and we drink the cup. We are sharing in Jesus's life that was poured out and broken for us. So go to the table, receive. Let's worship our King together. Let me pray. Father, we thank